It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So guys, I have to admit that this particular message uh, I've been anticipating for a long time. Uh, and it's, it's been sort of hard to hold this in because originally when I was mapping out this series, I had this as one uh, session, which is, I almost feel embarrassed at saying that because you have all the stuff from the island of uh, Athelney through what is going to happen today. I can't imagine doing this in one session because there's so much goodness uh, that is baked into it. But what's, there's so many uh, great twists. Like if this was a movie, there's, there's so many moments in this that have a little shock value to them. And so I've really liked it uh, in that regard as well, but there's a profundity, a depth of the nature and the character of God in all of this that I have really cherished and just basked in as I've gone through this. The first time I read this over, and by the way, for those of you that aren't familiar with the first 12 uh, episodes of this, I would highly recommend that you go back to the beginning and listen through. And even though if all you do is just keep listening to this one, hopefully it's still a standalone and can make sense, but we're hanging out in 878 AD as we're going through this. So it helps to have a little backdrop and a little context. But uh, we are, I, I was inspired by a book uh, by Dr. Benjamin Merkel called The White Horse King, which one of my friends gave me and just said, Eric, the same way that the Scottish Chiefs has impacted you, this book has greatly impacted me. And so that was enough to get me to dig into it. And when I was reading through that book, which I actually think is just a marvelous book, it's, uh, it's sort of like a doctoral thesis for him, but for me, it, I saw the poetry. I saw the artistic side of this man as he relayed uh, this extraordinary life of Alfred the Great. And this part that we're landing on right now out of the entire tapestry of Alfred the Great's life is probably one of the key things. There's multiple things that, I've, that are still to come that really stand out to me, but this one is almost like I had a highlighter pen over it. And so it's, it's a rather shocking thing that is going to happen because we have had this buildup, we have this great evil that has invaded uh, the island of Britain. And this is in a, a day and age where there's seven nations that make up Great Britain. So it's the Heptarchy is what it's called. And these Vikings are wicked, wicked, wicked. And it's, it's very similar to what we have felt in North America uh, with this invasion. It's not of Vikings, but it's a Viking ideology. It's of an anti-Christian nature that desires to destroy anything that would dare espouse the truth. And so this Vikingness is sweeping over the land of, uh, of Britain, and there is one nation that's going to stand against it, and that's the nation of Wessex, which is in the, the, south, uh, west, the south, uh, southwestern uh, corner of the island, and that's ruled by uh, this lineage of, which is what, what Alfred the Great comes from, but... Uh, when they first come in, Alfred wasn't king. Uh, actually, when they first invade Wessex, it's his older brother that is king. And Alfred is going to inherit uh, this kingship after his older brother is going to uh, die from a battle wound against these Vikings. 
And Alfred is going to inherit what most of us, if we were to look at it on paper, is an impossible situation. None of us would really want to be king in such a circumstance. Because there's a part of each of us that really sort of would like to be a king. You know, that sounds sort of fun. And maybe the ladies in here are like, I'd prefer queen. Uh, but to have that sort of grand position and that honor, you know, there's, there's a human uh, attraction to that. But technically, none of us would ever really want this. What, what is going to come upon Alfred's shoulders is so weighty. And there's going to be one evil guy that is going to rise up in the midst of it, and his name is Guthrum. And so for those of you that have followed this series, Guthrum is one of those guys that elicits a chorus of boos. I mean, he is one dark, evil character. And he has multiple times up to this point promised and, and, and given an oath and then betrayed the oath. And he has, there is zero reason why we should trust this guy, okay, up to this point in the story. In fact, there's every reason that we would want him absolutely destroyed. And it shows a certain aspect of our character that even though we be Christians and even though, yes, we esteem mercy and even though yes, we esteem forgiveness. There are certain people on earth that it's like, you just need to get rid of them. And Guthrum would fall into that category, which exposes a certain fraudulence in our own soul, a certain double standard in us, where it's just like, oh yes, I will forgive all, except. And then you have this little except, and Guthrum sort of can fall into that exception category. And that's why this story is so shocking. And I, I want to sort of set the stage because what we're going to have is this incredible rise of Alfred against Guthrum. And this tension is being created, which we, 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 we circled around uh, in this last message on, on Friday, which was called The Pursuit of Guthrum. And now we're going to even have another layer of shock uh, that is going to come into the storyline. And it's sort of uh, it's tough because it makes its way into the title, which is a little bit too strong of a foreshadow, and that is the shocking end of Guthrum. I mean, that's, I really don't like to have to stick that in the title, but hopefully it won't rob from the, mm, the power of what's baked into this message. So the players in this drama have already even sort of uh, introduced them, but there's a lot more players, but not a lot of characters. You know, and if, if you're a lady in here, you're like, where are all the females uh, in this story? There really aren't a lot of females in this story that I could draw out with any, I mean, he, he's married, Alfred is married, but it's not like his marriage is ever talked about. It seems to be before the romantic era came in of knights and fair maidens, where they always talked about the romance and the love interests. This seems to be in the age of stoicism, where you never talk about that sort of thing. We have hints that he deeply loved his wife, but we don't know much about it, right? So all the ladies in here are like a little disappointed about that. But Alfred is one of our characters. He's the king of Wessex, the really, really good guy, okay? Alfred is exceptionally interesting to us as Christians. We're like, wow, are you serious? Back in 878, in the middle of the Dark Ages, a man behaved like that, a man thought like that? He trembles before the word of God. He desires to honor God. He fears God. It's like, what is this? This is pretty special. And then we have a guy named Guthrum. Again, that's the chorus of booze. Uh, the king of the Vikings, the really, really bad guy. Okay, so what a contrast we see being created here. Wolfair, who could get a chorus of booze as well. He's a, uh, one of Alfred's most trusted thanes who is going to betray him. Uh, he's a betrayer of the king and of Wessex. And so actually, 
uh, all of Wessex is going to fall into Guthrum's rule because of Wolfhere's betrayal of Alfred. And that's, you know, there's a whole message called the betrayal of, of Wolfhere, uh, if you want to dig deeper into that. And then we have this new character that none of us have heard of, right? His name is Ethelstan. I'm going to say a mysterious new character that is just about to enter the storyline. And, I mean, out of nowhere, this guy is going to show up, and he's going to play a big part in all that is going to unfold. So I'm going to call it the mystery of Ethelstan. This is one of the most intriguing things in British history to try and understand is what we're going to call the mystery of Ethelstan. Okay, Ethelstan is a king, but he's not the king of Wessex. And you're going to say, but you haven't even mentioned him. I know. Okay, there's a reason. Now, I, again, Eric Ludy's a bit of a storyteller, okay? So there's re- I hold back on certain things to reveal them at certain times. Uh, he is the son of Alfred. And you're like, whoa. Okay, wait a minute. How come you haven't mentioned this? But he is not a blood relation to Alfred. He shows up in Wessex the same day Guthrum shockingly dies. His arrival is a total surprise to everyone, including himself. The mystery of Ethelstan still puzzles the students of British history to this day. Okay, can you see why Eric's sort of excited about this one? I mean, that's, that's fun. The mystery of Ethelstan. I almost called this the mystery of Ethelstan, which would have been a little more mysterious, I have to admit. But if you're following the series, you're like, who's that? You know, whereas the title I did choose, at least you've, you have a bond, whether you, it's a good bond with Guthrum or not, you at least have interest in that storyline. But no one knows who this guy is. So where did we leave off in our exciting story? So we're going to go back just a little. Uh, Dr. Merkel uh, says, finally, the Viking shield wall broke. Remember at the Battle of Eddington, uh, which the Battle of Eddington a few weeks earlier than this is this critical battle, which is impossible for Alfred to win. And yet, uh, here we are. And the full fury of the Anglo-Saxon warriors, Alfred's warriors, poured through the Viking ranks with a wild ferocity. Once more, the roles had reversed, and Alfred was again the hunter, tracking his prey in the wilds of Wessex. Guthrum was the prey, slinking silently through the night back to the safety of his stronghold in Chippenham. And Winston Churchill says it this way, Guthrum, king of the Viking army, so lately master of the one unconquered English kingdom, found himself penned in his camp. And then Asser, who is actually a contemporary of Alfred, it was a bishop that wrote his... uh, memoirs or wrote his life story says the heathen terrified by hunger cold and fear and at last the uh, and the last full of despair and at the last full of despair begged for peace winston churchill says guthrum offered to give him give without return as many hostages as alfred should care to pick and to depart forthwith and then dr merkel says the battle of eddington had suddenly reduced guthrum to groveling for his life So we have a turn of the tide in the whole history of this island known as Britain, which is going to, in the upcoming years, be known as England. It is all because of this. The Battle of Eddington is going to change the course of history. I mean, literally, this is not a small moment in history. It's going to affect World War I, which will affect World War II. I mean, everything, this is a critical juncture. How this island goes is going to define American history, It's going to define European history. It's going to define world history. And this event, Guthrum versus Alfred, is going to swing the future of this island into being a united island 
ruled by the Anglo-Saxons, which is then going to be conquered by the Normans after that. However, that's a different story. The extraordinary decision of Alfred. And so we have Guthrum penned in. This is the first time in the last 13 years of Viking invasion that the Saxon king has an opportunity to bring punishment on the Vikings, to make a declaration of, you mess with us, this is what you get. This is your just penalty. And so Alfred is going to make a decision, and this is what we covered on Friday, that is totally bewildering. It really is. So this is Alfred's terms for Guthrum's deliverance. So Guthrum is pleading for his life. And he says, you need to humble yourself and turn from your devotion to darkness, death, and the defiance of the Christ. And you need to offer your body as a living sacrifice unto him. You need to give up being Guthrum the terrible and become a new man in Christ. If you pledge to turn from your wicked ways and turn toward Jesus, you will have freedom. That is the most outrageous treaty that has ever been offered. And yet, if you look at it, you'll recognize something. That sounds very similar to what the kingdom of heaven is offering to us as we're penned in and chained to sin and its effects. And we are doomed because of it. And when we recognize that and we finally become desperate enough and we're willing to listen to the terms of peace and freedom, you can be set at liberty, but you need to give up your life. You need to give this body back over to the God who purchased it. You do not belong to yourself. And if you give yourself over to King Jesus, he will set you free from the powers of darkness and sin. So ironically, it just happens to be an incredible picture of the gospel here. Dr. Merkel says, Just as Ivar and Halfdan, who are sons of the evil Ragnar Lothbrok, had once sacrificed the conquered King El to their god in the barbaric blood eagle ceremony, Alfred insisted that Guthrum must likewise be given over to the god of his conquerors. So Alfred is going to make a decision that Guthrum needs to be turned over to his god, just as all the Viking conquerors have turned over the, the Saxon kings to their gods. And of course, the god of Alfred is very different than Odin, the god of the Vikings, than Thor, god of the Vikings. He's very different. First of all, he's real. Second of all, he's a god of mercy. Dr. Merkel continues, Guthrum accepted Alfred's terms immediately and swore to Alfred that he would honor the terms of this treaty, offering to Alfred his pick of the surviving Danish nobleman for hostages to guarantee this vow. So this is a question I asked on Friday, and I don't mind just having it linger in your soul afresh. And especially seeing my, my, what I gave for my sermon yesterday, the divine appraisal where I was talking about, again, it seemed like the messages was on the mercy of God again. I, I'm really sort of like a broken record on that theme lately. Is it right to give a lying Viking another chance? This is hard for us. Even though we are so far removed in history, it is hard for us to, let Al, you know, to see Alfred give him this reprieve because he's a liar. He is an oath breaker. He is not trustworthy, Alfred. If we're one of Alfred's close confidants and counselors, I could just imagine how we're going to encourage him in this. It's like, I see what you're trying to do. That is very noble. Okay, but we also have to be rational here. We are dealing with someone who is not trustworthy. He is a Viking. Deep down in their DNA, they seem to have this desire to lie more than tell the truth, right? 
So it's already a predefined label that you could very easily give to a Viking. And as a result, there's no hope for this Viking other than death and eternal damnation, right? They're Vikings. And Alfred sees something that is very different. He sees hope. He sees potential. He looks at a caterpillar and he sees a butterfly. And most of us don't see that. Of course, you're saying, yeah, Eric, my entire impression of Guthrum is based on what you have given me. So, Eric, it's your fault that you've given him no hope in a future. You've called him evil how many times? Yeah, I've really played that up, haven't I? And yet Alfred is going to give him mercy? Is it right to give a lying Viking another chance? If it's not, then none of us have hope. The entire principle of the gospel hinges upon the fact that God gives mercy to the lying Viking. So Dr. Merkel continues, certainly Alfred had good reason to be suspicious of oaths taken by Danes. He had already seen the Vikings break countless vows, vows made before the Christian God, vows made to their own gods, even vows made with Viking hostages given as guarantees. None of these had proved sure. How could Alfred think that Guthrum would suddenly begin to respect the vow of Christian baptism? I mean, to, to many of us, it just seems so preposterous that he's going to baptize Guthrum. It's like, I, to me, I take baptism extremely seriously, right? I do not baptize my children until they show a genuine faith. I don't just baptize them because they're my kids. I baptize them because they're showing a genuine faith. Now, that's Eric Ludi, right? That's how I have parented my kids. In other words, I take it very seriously. I don't want it to ever be treated lightly. I don't want my children to lean on an experience of baptism instead of on their faith in Christ. And so as a result, I hold it very seriously. And so I don't like, this whole story makes me feel a little uncomfortable. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is a guy who's desperate to save his life. He'll do anything. So Alfred, you want to make sure that this is genuine. And so my immediate, you know, this is the reason why this story is so shocking to me, is it's not the way I would naturally reason through the storyline. This isn't what I was expecting. James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a fact. And you're going to see it in this story. So... A couple weeks after, they're going to take a journey. Guthrum and 30 Viking nobles are going to be taken by Alfred to, we're going to call it the place of Alfred's sufferings. This is literally where, right outside of Athelney, where he worshipped in a little small dilapidated church during his exile. When Guthrum was ruling the territory, this is where he prayed for deliverance. And he is going to bring him there. And this is such a parallel. On Friday, I talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit will bring us to the place of Christ's sufferings. See, we're like the Guthrum in the story. I know that you, that's another shocker in this. Like, whoa, you're making me Guthrum in the story? We're the ones in need of mercy. And Alfred is the one in a position as a king to give that mercy. He has all power here. And he is going to give Guthrum mercy and opportunity, and one of the ways that he's going to do it is he's going to bring him to that place of suffering. Alfred led Guthrum and 30 of the Viking king's most trusted noblemen to the small church he attended while hiding in his swamp fortress at Athelney. Dr. Merkel says, after the parade of warriors arrived at the church of Aller, they were greeted at the door by the priest who was to conduct the ceremony. For Guthrum and his men, the following ceremony must have felt bizarre and foreign, the 9th century liturgy for baptism was filled with a number of symbolic ceremonies designed to portray the significance of taking on the Christian faith and the necessity of turning from all elements of paganism. 
All right, guys, sorry that I threw that up on the screen without giving you any warning. Uh, the death of Guthrum. This is, uh, the whole story is quite shocking, and of course, this is another shocking thing. We actually know all, very rarely you can go that, back that far in history and actually know all the final moments and the final steps of a person's life. And we actually know the final steps and movements of Guthrum's life before something shocking happens. Okay, now, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a little vague and I recognize that, but that's part of the uniqueness of the story. The death of Guthrum. Who would have guessed that he would die in a dilapidated church building? This mighty Viking that no matter what you try and do to stop him, he wins the battles, right? Over and over again. He's a conqueror of nations, and he's going to walk into a little dilapidated church building and die? The final steps to Guthrum's unexpected death. Number one, Guthrum followed Alfred into the quaint church building. Isn't this cool that we have this much detail in, in literally his final moments? Number two, Guthrum was met at the door by the priest. Number three, the priest blew on Guthrum's face, symbolizing the breath of God entering into the body of Guthrum to drive out all the devil's works. Number four, the priest placed a bit of salt beneath Guthrum's tongue, signifying the impartation of divine wisdom to Guthrum. Now, if some of you think this is odd, okay, it's a little odd to me too. Uh, and the fact that we even know that this was happening, some of you are like, I can see why he died. You stick a little salt beneath his tongue... That isn't the reason he died, but it is fascinating. And it is interesting because they were a deeply symbolic culture. So everything they're doing is meaning something. And it's just really interesting to, to recognize what is happening in these exact moments. Number five, then the priest spat upon his own hand and wiped the spittle onto Guthrum's ears and nostrils, showing him that wisdom would come to him through hearing and discerning. Number six, then he splashed oil on his finger and drew a cross on Guthrum's chest and on Guthrum's back signifying that Christ's shed blood would be a shield to Guthrum from all the fiery darts of the evil one. Number seven, then Guthrum was led to Alfred, who stood by a fountain. Number eight, here Guthrum renounced his allegiance to Satan and his new allegiance to Jesus Christ. Number nine, and Alfred pressed Guthrum's head down into the water of the fountain. Number 10, Alfred said, in the name of the Father, and then lifted Guthrum's head back out of the water. Number 11, then Alfred pressed Guthrum's head once more down into the water. Number nine, Alfred said, in the name of the Son, and then lifted Guthrum's head back out of the water. Number ten, and then one more time, Alfred dunked Geth Guthrum's head into the water. Alfred said, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and then lifted Guthrum's head back out of the water. Number fifteen, after this final time, Alfred grasped Guthrum by the shoulders and embraced him. But it wasn't Guthrum that he embraced. Guthrum was no more. Okay, guys, you ready for this next uh, slide? All right, this is, this is a long, long time in coming, long time in coming. The man he embraced was a new man with a different name. His name was Ethelstan. He looked identical to Guthrum, but he was not the same. Okay, guys, isn't that good? That's good stuff. The medieval understanding of a Christian's new birth. Okay, this is quite intriguing because... You know, you have that derivative of Catholicism that is going to make its way through medieval history, and you're going to have this, uh, this picturesque version of something that we all understand, though we're not Catholic, we understand as the historic concept of death unto life, of what baptism is. And so what we have here is something really interesting of what is taking place and what Alfred is deliberately choosing to do here. 
Dr. Merkel says, the Christian church had long understood from Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3, 5, that the entrance into the Christian faith was a kind of rebirth. Medieval Christians took this imagery seriously and insisted that this second spiritual birth included many of the same elements as the first physical birth. Since one had physical parents at the first birth, then one must also have spiritual parents at the second birth. Therefore, at baptism, each candidate was accompanied by a man or woman who sponsored this new Christian as godparent and pledged to act as a spiritual mentor. The relationship of godfather to God's son was considered to be every bit as real as the relationship between father and son. I don't know if there's a way that I could prep your soul to truly grasp and understand how significant what you're about to hear is, but you have a man that most of us would, said, would have said, if Alfred had beheaded him, even made a spectacle of him, hanged him publicly, it would have been completely right as a king to do. Instead, he is going to give him mercy if he will surrender to his God. And if he will give up the ways of darkness, if he will turn from his wicked ways, and if he will humble himself, Alfred will give him liberty. But to do that and to show the seriousness of his pledge unto his God, he needs to prove that by giving up his old life through baptism. He needs to enter into the work of Christ's shed blood through faith by entering through the, the process, the sacrament, as they would call it, of baptism. Guthrum agrees to do this even though many of us are a little dubious about his motive behind. It's like, yeah, so he's going to go through all this act, and then he's just going to go and do his own thing anyways. In fact, he could stab you in the back, and the pain of it could be all the more, Alfred, if you continue down this road of believing this liar. And yet, Alfred doesn't just walk to the point that we understand now, but he is going to enter into a role and a relationship and a commitment to Guthrum to say, I'm going to take a place of father in your life, to mentor you to understand the kingdom of heaven. He is going to be just in, in, the, in this culture to be a physical parent and to be a spiritual parent were the same. It had the same gravity, the same responsibility. And Alfred is taking that responsibility upon himself towards this man who, up to this point, is his greatest arch nemesis. For instance, not long after Alfred's time, it was considered a violation of biblical law if a man were to marry his goddaughter, since the marriage of a father to his daughter would be considered incestuous. To act as godfather at an Anglo-Saxon baptism was to invite the baptized man into one's family. Unlocking the mystery of Ethelstan. Ethelstan is a king, but not a king of Wessex. He is the son of Alfred, but he is not a blood relation to Alfred. He shows up in Wessex the same day Guthrum shockingly dies. His arrival is a total surprise to everyone, including himself. The mystery of Ethelstan still puzzles the students of British history to this day. They're like, how could he do that? There is no way that he could trust that Viking. And yet Alfred does. Alfred trusts that this is genuine. 
and he's going to prove that by what he does afterwards. The celebration of the prodigal's homecoming. So the prodigal is one of those stories that oftentimes we'll refer to when we are the prodigal, right? And we're like, boy, do I need a little encouragement now. And yet, if we were to look at this picture from the heart of God towards those that are uh, living contrary to the pattern of the home, to the pattern of the, the king, and you're going to see this love and this care that this father has for one that is uh, not living as he ought. And when that prodigal arrives uh, back at the house, you guys remember that it's not just an acceptance and a receiving in, it's actually a celebration. Luke 15, 20 through 24, and he, the prodigal son, arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. I'm going to read that line again just to try and emphasize it as a foreshadow. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to be merry. So that story has a whole new depth of understanding in this storyline, because it is so fantastical that we almost don't have a way of describing it. I mean, Guthrum? The king of the Vikings? You mean the really bad guy that nearly destroyed all of this island and its history? The one that raped and pillaged and kidnapped and, you know, sacrificed kings unto his God in a devil, a devil, a devilish, demonic way? Devil would probably be a good word to describe it. Dr. Merkel says, after Guthrum, now Ethelstan, godson of King Alfred had been baptized, the sign of the cross was marked upon his forehead with oil, confirming his baptism, and his head was bound with a white cloth. All the men receiving baptism were then robed entirely in white, symbolizing that the rags of their old lives had been removed and that they were now united with the risen Christ through his, this second birth and were clothed with his glory. Isn't that cool? I mean, there's some, there's some neat external things that they used to do. I don't know. We'd probably feel weird if we did them, right? If those of you that get baptized and then you walk around in white robes for a week, people would be like, there's a cult if I've ever seen one. <laughs> <clears throat> All the newly baptized Vikings were to wear these robes for the next week. Immediately after the service, Alfred led the host of new Christians to his royal estate in the village of Wedmore, one day's journey to the north of Aller. At Wedmore, Alfred treated his godson, along with Guthrum's 30 Danish companions, to 12 days of Anglo-Saxon feasting. The Viking guests, once the mortal enemies of the Wessex throne, now sat in Alfred's raucous mead hall, white-robed, banqueting on roasted boar and venison, draining horns of mead and listening to the Saxon shope thrumming on his lyre and singing poems of the glory of long-dead warriors mingled with lyrics praising the Most High God who had created the wonder-filled world. Don't you feel a little awkward with these guys here with us? It's like these are Vikings and they're hanging out in the most intimate fellowship. If you guys remember the message, the fellowship of the king, this is the intimate sector 
where the king, this is like a, a form of love and devotion that a king and his thanes share. And he is going to invite, I was going to call him Guthrum, but Guthrum's dead, Ethelstan and 30 Danes, we won't call them Vikings, we'll call them Danes, right, uh, with them in their white robes. And I mean, do you feel awkward here? Is this normal? Are we supposed to do this? This is the kingdom of heaven right here. We have been invited in. We have been allowed into an inner circle that we have no business being in. What, what right do we have to be in that mead hall? To be clothed in white? To share in such intimate fellowship? And so as a result, when I see something like this, even though as I was reading through the book, I wasn't really identifying with Guthrum. As I was going through, I was just upset with Guthrum, Right? When you get to a point like this, you have to sort of recognize and, and recalibrate your perspective to recognize that's all of us. Every single one of us is undeserving to enter into such a place of fellowship. And yet, we've been invited. Dr. Merkel continues, Each of these 12 days of feastings was filled with festivities and entertainment, hunting, horse races, foot races, archery, wrestling, and all the sports that delighted the Saxons most. The nights were filled with feasting and the music of the shop. Then well into the feasting, each night Alfred would open up his treasure hoard and begin to bestow on his guests mountains of splendid gifts. His largesse, which is like his generosity, his wealth being shared, flowed unrestrained by any resentment of the previous years of hostility between himself and his guests. Rather than vengeance, Alfred offered forgiveness a forgiveness made clear through the great Saxon virtue of gift-giving. Pattern welders, pattern-welded swords with their serpentine-edged blades, magnificent helms crested with fierce boars, gilded and jeweled, finely crafted brooches and, brooches and pendants, all these and more were handed over to the Viking guests. But most important of all, King Alfred gave his guests rings. The gift that most conveyed the relationship that Alfred had established with Guthrum. King Alfred was once again the ring giver of Wessex, sitting enthroned in the mead hall with his faithful thanes surrounding him, eating his meat, drinking his mead, taking his gifts, and pledging their allegiance to him. And here Guthrum sat, now a Christian named Ethelstan, receiving Alfred's gifts and pledging faithfulness to the king of Wessex. So was this just another Guthrum ruse? So, I mean, all of this is so bewildering, okay? That's, that's why I'm saying when I get to this point in the storyline, I just sort of, I don't know if I should stumble over it, if I should just sit back in awe, set down the book and go, what? How? At the same time, I'm deeply attracted to it. There is something about it that is so marvelous in my soul. And I think that's because it heralds to each of us the beauty of the kingdom of heaven, the behavior of the king of kings that a king would behave this way. Even to give him mercy, we're a little uncomfortable. But then to bring in that whole baptism scene in, it's like, you actually believe this guy that he would mean it? He's a liar. But then to bring him into the mead hall, into the intimate fellowship, to call him your son, to treat him as a son, and now, oh, you're going to save your rings for Saxons. Don't give it to an ex-Viking. He is going to take a ring and give it to Guthrum. That's like the symbol of what he gives to his thanes. He's treating 
Ethelstan, I mean, you still want to call him Guthrum, right? Because there's part of us on the human side that can see only the old. And we don't see what Alfred has seen. He sees a new creature. He sees someone that has been changed. And he wants to foster that just as a father would foster that in a young son. So was this just another Guthrum ruse? You know that we actually do know the answer to that. Aren't you guys intrigued? I should end the message right there. (laughs) No, I won't do that. Uh, We actually do know history. We do know what happened with this guy. Alfred is going to set him free with his men, and they're going to leave Wessex, and they're going to head to Mercia, which is the northern, uh, the, the nation just north of them. Remember where Snottingham was? That was Mercia. Uh, and Guthrum, almost immediately, there is going to be the arrival of a huge warring band of Vikings that are going to show up on the shorelines of uh, Britannia, and they're going to immediately go to Guthrum. They're going to find out where Guthrum is because he is their most evil. He's the one that hates the Saxons, maybe more than anyone else. And if you want to win a battle, you want Guthrum on your side. And they're going to go to Guthrum, who's no longer Guthrum. And he will not join. They want to take out Alfred. And he will not participate. This is Guthrum, or should I say Ethelstan. It's like, who are we dealing with here? What happened to this guy? Let me read you this. This is sort of a summary statement from Dr. Merkel. Ethelstan stayed true to the vows of his baptism and pulled his own troops away from the northern border of Wessex, leaving Sirencester to march back to East Anglia, where he settled into life as a Christian king, ruling over the people of East Anglia. So he is going to move from Mercia to East Anglia, which is where King Edmund used to be. Remember him? I liked him. After his baptism, he never gave reason to believe that he was anything other than a sincere Christian. Isn't that remarkable? Ten years later, when King Ethelstan died, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle recorded his death and described him as the northern king whose baptismal name was Ethelstan, the godson of Alfred. No mention was made of his life as a Viking or his years of waging war against Wessex. He was simply Alfred's godson. I, uh, okay, I can't speak for you. All I can say, you know, since I'm the one with a microphone here, I'll speak for myself. I have a wow inside of my soul that my years as a Viking are not remembered, but just my decision to follow Christ. That that's the defining attribute. This is a man who in the history books of Great Britain is a menace at the highest levels. He's a Hitler in the midst of this island, in this island's history. And yet when he dies in the, in the recording, the official legal recording of his death, he is not even going to have his Viking mm, badness mentioned. That's an extraordinary statement. And it's a pretty special one for all of us to remember. Our God is so much more merciful than King Alfred. And yet here in even a human sense, we see a picture of something which is quite amazing to our soul. And I think for us afresh to remember that this 
is not just something that is given to us. This is something that is meant to be given through us. That we are designed as carrying vehicles, just as Alfred is. In all of history, this story reverberates. And what's shocking is how few of us even know the story. To actually recognize that God desires to change the course of history in and through these vessels known as us, or this vessel known as us. In other words, we are the carrying vehicles of this very mercy that shocks the onlooking world. British historians still struggle with knowing how to deal with this story. They don't know exactly what to do with it, maybe other than bury it, because it doesn't make any sense. How could Alfred make that decision and not have it harm him for the rest of his life? Instead, Ethelstan is going to be a critical carrier of stabilizing this nation, which is ultimately going to become England. He is not against Alfred anymore. And as a result, you're going to see him even play a part or a role in the stabilization of this nation. It's pretty amazing. Father, instruct us in your mercy. Give us greater understanding, Lord, for our own soul, but also for those around us. Lord, each of us has been Guthrum at some level, and each of us has Guthrums in our life. This culture has Guthrums. And Lord, to the degree that you would use us, I pray, Lord, that we would delight and would seek to give your grace, your kindness, and your mercy to such as these. Lord, you have poured out your grace and your mercy upon us. And Lord, we say thank you afresh for that. Thank you for the ring that you have given to us to wear on our finger. Lord, we want to be your faithful things, to remember our covenant and to stand in your shield wall. Lord, it is our great privilege to serve you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.